Um, I know we're so blessed to have those who can minister to us in music, and we are eager ourselves to be able to sing again. Uh, not that I have any great gift for singing, but there is a joy in uh, hearing God's voices, uh, the, the voices of God's people uh, together, uh, praising him. There's a unique joy in that. So we look forward to returning to that soon. And I want to thank uh, Tim Malvaso, who was here, Pastor Malvaso, for uh, bringing us the word for three weeks in a row. He's always ready. I, could, uh, I think I could have called him this morning and he would have been ready. <laughs> Uh, to preach, and so that's a faithful man of God, and I'm, I'm only sorry that I wasn't able to hear uh, the messages this time, uh, but hopefully we'll be in the future uh, when he brings a word to us again. So thank you, Tim, uh, for your faithfulness and for uh, uh, serving us in the word. Uh, many years of doing that. Well, this morning we're going to finally, at last, begin our look at the book of Ecclesiastes. So as I introduce it uh, this morning, why don't you go ahead and make your way over to it, the book of Ecclesiastes. It is in, uh, if you'll remember, it goes Job, uh, Psalms, uh, Proverbs, and then the book of Ecclesiastes right before Song of Solomon, which would be great to get to down the road uh, as well. Uh, but this morning, we begin our look at the book of Ecclesiastes, which has uh, been on my heart for a long time to want to study and know better. It's, it's been a favorite Old Testament book of mine, and I know of many of you as well. And it was interesting to see many promptings of the Lord uh, to finally just take some time to look through it. Hopefully, we'll get through it maybe in the next uh, six, eight weeks, something like that. I'm not exactly sure, but... Uh, It lends itself to be taken in large sections, and so we will uh, intend to do that. But it's also uh, always interesting and encouraging to see the providence of God, of how he leads uh, us as a church, and the things that he wants to say to us, and that he wants to, uh, the ways that he wants to instruct us. And Ecclesiastes, as much as any book, really all of Scripture would, would be applicable to our times, but Ecclesiastes in its own unique way, in its own unique perspective, uh, is apt for our times, and apt for uh, the circumstances that we live in. Uh, I think it's not a surprise to any of us if I were to say, or it wouldn't be, uh, I think nobody would disagree, that we live in uncertain times. Now, in one sense, we always live in uncertain times, but in another sense, at least in our generation, we live in really uncertain times in terms of at least our experience and in terms of the things that we would expect uh, by that experience that most of us have had or that all of us have had for our whole lives. It seems like on a turn of a dime, there is rampant confusion and injustice, and even injustice by those who are claiming to fight for justice. Lies are flagrant. Uh, They don't even try to be hidden anymore. Truth is often twisted and flaunted to serve the means of particular groups and ideologies. And the ability to have predicted these massive events that are happening all at the same time uh, is strange to any of us. Nobody could have called the the way that it is happening before our eyes. And nobody can call what's to happen still. We don't know yet what's to come in the weeks and the months and the year ahead. We don't know the long-term effects of these workings of God in his world, in our own nation and among the nations uh, in the world. And outside of such national catastrophes and national changes and national tragedies, there are the innumerable personal tragedies that come into our lives. We have the death of loved ones. We have the loss of jobs. We have difficulties that uh, are unexpected that enter into our lives in any number of ways. And it's the same could be said of blessings as well. Oftentimes, God has ways that he cares for us and serves for us and shows us his mercy that in ways that we wouldn't expect. They're merely expressions of his sovereign goodness and his kindness to us as his children. So we never really know what lies around the corner. We simply live life and we take it as it comes, both those things that are trials and both those things that are mercies and blessings. In short, life is certain and unpredictable. And the course of events as we experience them are often mysterious. They're past our finding out. They're inexplicable. We don't really know why things happen the way that they do. They simply do, but we understand that God is yet in control. 
And we know that there are principles built into God's universe that are consistent, and yet we never fully know the outcome of our effort and our work. It could be for flourishing, and it could be for a time of trial. We simply don't know. The world is uncertain, it's changing, and in that sense, it's unstable. We don't know what's going to happen. And then you add on top of this the reality of death, that we're all going to die, and that puts everything into perspective, and even in our own death, we don't know when that's going to happen. Read the headlines. There was a prince of somewhere that just died at 54 on a motorcycle accident. So-and-so dies of a drug overdose. So-and-so dies for whatever reason. You know, an 18-year-old was just cast out to sea. They can't find him. He's missing. He was swimming in the ocean. And you could just go on down the list. None of these thought that that day they woke up the morning was going to be their last, and yet, as human beings living in the conditions of this world, we know that that's always around the corner for all of us. Life is uncertain. We've given an extended quote in the past of Jonathan Edwards in his sermon, uh, Sinners in the Hand of the Angry God, who, who lays that out so, so powerfully that God has innumerable ways to take us out of this world, and we never know how he's going to do it. We're like a spider hanging from a thin web over a flame of fire. We're walking on unstable ground, and we never know when it might swallow us up. That's just the reality of the human experiences or the human experience. So we live in a world, if we were to summarize all of that to say simply, we live in a world under the conditions of sin. We live in a world under the conditions of the fall. And to try to live in this world and find meaning in it, meaning in the world itself, is only going to leave one empty and with a feeling of frustration and futility. Creation was never meant to provide ultimate meaning for human life, for human beings made in the image of God. And this really is the context for the overall message of the book of Ecclesiastes, of which a key subject matter is this, the frustration of trying to find meaning in a world under the condition of sin. The frustration of trying to find meaning or purpose in a world that has been corrupted by the fall and is itself only temporary. In this sense, one notes, and I quote, Ecclesiastes is a satiric attack on the acquisitive, hedonistic, and materialistic society. It exposes the mad quest to find satisfaction in knowledge, wealth, pleasure, work, fame, and sex. And yet those are all the things that humanity so eagerly pursues to try to find meaning. It's certainly what's pervaded before our eyes in terms of media and entertainment as being the ultimate thing that will bring happiness and satisfaction in life. And yet, it's not new to the human experience to realize that the more those things are pursued as ends in themselves to provide pleasure, the more they leave the pursuer empty when they, once they have it all. Sin has pleasure for a moment, there is pleasure that someone can have for a time and wealth and sex and all of these other things, but it's momentary. It will pass, and then comes the consequences. And when they wake up in the morning, if that's been the life pursuit, one day they are going to wake up, and they're going to find themselves empty and without answers and unsatisfied. And Ecclesiastes is unique among the works of God and particularly among the wisdom literature of God because he faces this reality, these realities head on. He doesn't sugarcoat anything. He doesn't in any way minimize this kind of frustration that we as human beings feel and struggle with as we live in this world. But he doesn't leave us there because it is a word from God in which God is always revealing himself in his word. So the ultimate intent isn't to leave us with an understanding of the frustrations, but to realize them to point us back to God in his transcendent glory so that we could live wisely and contentedly in this world. And in that way, Ecclesiastes, like every work of scripture, becomes our teacher, but Ecclesiastes especially so. And that's even in the very title, Ecclesiastes. 
Uh, you might wonder, what exactly does that mean? Well, some of you will recognize that Ecclesiastes comes from the Greek word that you're very familiar with, Ecclesia, which speaks of the church. It speaks of a gathering, people who are called out. It's used in a very secular sense, even in Scripture itself. But it has, it gets overwhelming use is to speak of the church. But it has the basic idea of gathered ones. And so Ecclesiastes is the name that was given in the Septuagint. And y'all will remember that's a Greek, an old Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was written primarily in Hebrew. And it was called Ecclesiastes, and Ecclesiastes was, were, was the attempt of those translators to capture the meaning of the word in Hebrew that you might also, if you're familiar with the, uh, the book, uh, well, you'll be familiar with this term, koaleth, koaleth. And that is what is often translated as preacher, preacher. It simply means someone who gathers people into an assembly to speak to them. And so when he refers to himself as the preacher, he is the one who, before the gathered people of God, is sent to instruct them, to instruct them about this world and the wise way to live in it. And so in that sense, we are an apt audience, that we are sitting under the preacher who, by divine inspiration, is going to meet with us over the next few weeks to instruct us and to teach us. Now, this is just a broad introduction, so uh, in that, uh, for that purpose, uh, for our purposes this morning, we're just going to look at it in two uh, big categories, two big categories. We're going to look at an overview of the book, and then we're going to look at an overview of themes. Now, there are many sub-themes under these, uh, the ones that I'll mention, and we'll look at those and consider them as we walk through the book itself. Uh, but this morning, I simply want to give you a sense of uh, the overall message of Ecclesiastes and to set the stage for what we'll look at in the weeks to come. Now, as we do that, I'm going to try this new technology. So if I'm looking down at my phone, I'm not checking text. I just want you to know that. Uh, I am trying to control these screens so our beloved Michael Hokinson uh, doesn't have to figure everything out that I'm thinking. Okay, so, ah, oh, look at that. He's anticipated us already. <laughs> this is the first one, an overview of the book. An overview of the book. I'll try uh, not to be too clumsy with the technology. An overview of the book. So let's just consider what Ecclesiastes is. And then again, I'll just go through this uh, broadly. And the first thing we want to consider then is its genre. It didn't work. There it is. Okay, we'll get this figured out. Genre. Genre is very important when it, uh, it's a very important principle of interpretation is recognizing the kind of book that we are reading. Of course, many of you already know that. Many of the men who have gone through hermeneutics and are doing that understand that. That one of the first things we want to recognize is what kind of book are we reading? And the genre of Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature. Wisdom literature. And again, that's very important to understand. We come across many types of writing uh, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And by understanding the type of writing that it is, it will aid us in interpreting the book properly. Let me just give you a few examples of that. When we read narrative, we understand that we are reading a story, an account of events that fit into a larger storyline, both within the book itself and within the canon. And so we understand in reading narrative as we go through that not everything that is recorded for us in Scripture is an affirmation of the rightness of that act. So you can think of many examples, but you can think of Abraham marrying Hagar. That's simply recorded as what it is. There's no affirmation of that being a right act or that being consistent with righteousness. It's just simply a narrative account of what Abraham did. As you read narrative, you look for key comments by the narrator that explains the story or the account that was just given. So, for example, in Rehoboam, Solomon's son, in his foolishness to not listen to the counsel of the wiser sages and uh, his father's counselors, it, uh, it then treats the people harshly after his father's death, and they turn on him, and that brings about the split of the kingdom between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdoms. But as you have the account of this, you have a word of the narrator that simply says this, it was a turn of events from the Lord that he might establish his word. 
And so those are parts of reading narrative. In poetry, there's heavy uses of figures of speech. And so when you go into poetry, you expect to have that kind of language. And this all fits within literal interpretation. Obviously, trees don't clap their hands. That is a, a way to view a picture and to hit us emotively with the reality of all creation displaying and rejoicing in God's glory. And there's many other rules that apply to prophecy, parables, law, gospel, apocalyptic uh, literature, and so on and so forth. But in that genre, there is wisdom literature, and Ecclesiastes fits squarely within that. There are other books that are primarily considered wisdom literature. That is Job and the book of uh, Ecclesiastes and the book of Proverbs. So Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature. So as we go through there, it's going to bear the qualities of wisdom literature of that kind or that genre of writing. It has pithy statements, as you uh, are familiar with, and Proverbs, these sort of one-verse kind of statements that we uh, memorize that are meant to be general truths, general realities. They're not absolute promises, for example. Uh, you could say, Proverbs says, a gentle answer turns away wrath. Well, generally, that's true. It's not always true. Sometimes a gentle answer doesn't abate wrath at all. <laughs> it might even encourage it. But generally, that is a true statement. It is how the world works. There are parallelisms where one truth is set aside another truth, and there's different forms and, and ways that that happens, but we see that. So, for example, again, in Proverbs, it says, a wise man is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is arrogant and careless, making a contrast there. And sometimes... Wisdom literature gives us seemingly contradictory statements. And that's going to be an important role in understanding Ecclesiastes. Some of you may have felt that as you've read through it and been confused by it. What is an example of that? Well, in Proverbs, one of the most uh, well-known of these is, do not answer, Proverbs 26, do not answer a fool according to his folly, Proverbs 26.5, answer a fool as his folly deserves. Well, do you answer a fool or do you not answer a fool? Ecclesiastes has similar language in chapter 2, verse 2. We're going to be jumping around at some different things, so don't try to follow, unless you want to. Uh, he says that, uh, I said of, of laughter, it is madness, and of pleasure, what does it accomplish? And yet you turn over a few uh, chapters, and in chapter 8, verse 15, he says, I commend pleasure, for there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and drink and to be merry. Does he commend pleasure, or does he say there's emptiness in pleasure? These are part of the contradictions that God gives us in wisdom literature, and why does he give these to us? Because wisdom literature makes us stop and think. It makes us ponder. Wisdom literature particularly teaches us how to think and ponder and apply righteousness in the complexities of this world. You don't have to live long in this world to realize it's complex. That's why truth so often has to be nuanced. Arguments have to be nuanced. Things are rarely as simple as black and white. There's other parts, and wisdom, there's other parts to it. And wisdom literature, particularly Ecclesiastes and Proverbs, brings us face to face with that reality, and it causes us to think and to say, how are we to work that out? And oftentimes in these contradictory, seemingly contradictory statements, and yet they are not, there is an answer. And so Ecclesiastes sticks squarely among wisdom literature, and yet it does so uniquely. It gives us a divine word from God that provides an answer for how man is to live wisely in a world under the condition of sin, the certainty of death, and the inability to discern God's works that are far beyond our capacity. As I noted earlier then, what is unique about Ecclesiastes is the particular realism with which he speaks, the realism of human frustration with the futility of life in the light of death, and the certainty of divine sovereignty and ultimate justice in light of a world that has so many injustices met in this life. If you look for perfect justice, though we should strive for it in this life, you will only come up empty and frustrated. How do we account for that? With a God ruling over all things whose very nature is to be just and righteous. 
How are we to live in that kind of world? Well, Ecclesiastes takes us there. Ecclesiastes helps us to think about it. One has said this, speaking of uh, wisdom literature generally. Wisdom, it has been noted, uh, there it is. Wisdom, it has been noted, is concerned with the correct ordering of life. Wise action is that which integrates people harmoniously into the order God has created. Even more succinctly, wisdom is a theology of the redeemed man living in a world under God's rule. That's what wisdom is. We say, how am I to live? How am I to understand these things? How am I to put all of this confusion and inconsistencies together to make sense of it? Secondly, and I'm going to go a little quicker through some of these. So the genre of, of Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature. It's teaching us to live wisely in the world with all of its confusion and complexities. Secondly, who is the author? Well, I've already mentioned it. Uh, maybe this should have probably been mentioned first, but... The author is, we would hold, Solomon, the son of David. Now, many of you might take that for granted, and that is traditionally how it has been understood. Solomon is the author. That is uh, how we will take it and how uh, I understand this and... Uh, 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 squarely so. But this idea was challenged as early as Martin Luther, who was one of the first to suggest that Solomon was not uh, the main author or the author at all. And much of modern critical scholarship does not accept Solomon as the author or at least the only author of Ecclesiastes. So I mentioned that, not that we're going to get into some discussion, but so you're aware as you might read different things about Ecclesiastes and you come across that idea. Some of the reasons given are the apparent negative circumstances in Israel. So in chapter 5, he talks about this rampant injustice of leaders, and they'd say, well, under the reign of Solomon, how could there be that kind of injustice? And yet, that's simply a recognition that even under the righteous reign of Solomon, uh, not all things were righteous. Solomon himself had disregarded God's instruction and God's laws, and he himself was subject to the sin that was still under his kingdom. He could not address it all. It was... It's challenged sometimes because it seems to give an argument that mirrors Greek rather than a Jewish worldview or a secular rather than a covenant worldview. And yet that doesn't hold up either because throughout Ecclesiastes we are reminded that man is created in the image of God and we are reminded that God will uphold all to his standard of justice in the end and we are reminded that it's incumbent upon God or man to fear God who is the ruler over all things. It clearly fits within the covenant language and theology of the Torah and the prophets. And as I mentioned earlier, some have a hard time with it because it contains these contradictory statements. And it, it seems to them then that you have one author, maybe Solomon or someone in his stead, that wrote a rather pessimistic book that's then later come in by other authors to be corrected and explained. And so those are all some of the reasons, but as we'll see in a minute, they don't hold water. Solomon is the author of Ecclesiastes, and it fits clearly and squarely within his other works that were given to us or through him by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Ecclesiastes presents the accumulated wisdom of Solomon, both the wisdom that he had from God and the wisdom that he gained through his experience in the world of having absolute freedom to pursue everything that could enter into the heart of man and find out the end of it, to teach us that in itself it is futile. And that goes into another part. What is the tone of Ecclesiastes? Many think it's negative. And that was already suggested. But they think it's a negative tone. And they're like, how could this be in Scripture? It seems so negative. It seems so pessimistic. It seems to miss the reality of God's goodness to his people. However, and certainly it is more negative than Proverbs, it's akin in some ways to Job, but even Job seems to have more light at the end of the tunnel. Even Job seems to have more of a sense of the goodness of God in the complexities of life. And so some read Ecclesiastes and they go, it's so negative, it's so pessimistic, how could this be given to, the, to God's people? 
And if it's seen only in terms, if the statements that are made are seen only in terms of the futility of meaning in this world that, are, that is our lot, then of course, then it would have a negative tone overall. I mean, how does it begin? In verse 2, vanity of vanities. We'll look at this next week. Futility of futility, emptiness of emptiness, meaningless of meaninglessness are some of the ways we could look at that. He says in verse 18, because in much wisdom, and remember, this is a book that fits within wisdom literature, there is much grief and increasing knowledge increases, in, in, increases pain. He says in verse, the end of verse 11 in chapter 2, he says, Behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was no profit under the sun. He says in verse 17 of chapter 2, I hated life. I hated life. For the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me, because everything is futility and striving after winds. And so those statements are there, and many others could be added that we'll look at as we go throughout. He does clearly see that there is a, a kind of gray cloud that hangs over this world when this world, again, and this is the key, is seen as an end in itself. There is a kind of emptiness that, that lays over it. There is a kind of futility that all are forced to experience when this is the only thing that they see. However, this fails to recognize the role that these negative statements or these negative assessments play in the overall message of Ecclesiastes. In light of and against these, there are many positive statements. And so these statements are not the heart and the essence of the book. They are merely an acknowledgement of the realism of living in this world while providing a background for the positive encouragement of seeking God. One said this, and then I'll give some examples. The juxtapositions are purposeful. I think this is a... There it is. The juxtapositions are purposeful. The book is like a Rembrandt painting where the dark backgrounds and figures draw one's eyes to the figures of the light. The teacher's dark background of vanity and death seeks to draw the reader to the elements in the light. To enjoy, it is God's gift. Fear God and keep his commandments. The light is the focal point of the teacher's message, but only in contrast to the darkness of life without God. Let me give you one example. Uh, right at the beginning, after those statements that I read to you of the futility of life, the conclusion is this. For who can eat, in verse 225, who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to one who is good in God's sight. In other words, those things are vanity when as an end in themselves, but when received as a gift of God, they have a joy and a pleasure in them that God has designed for us to experience who trust him. And so it's not fatalistic. It just realizes the reality of life. It's not a nihilistic approach that has only darkness and futility at the end of our existence, but it says that our existence now is not everything it was supposed to be, but something better is coming and there is a way to have contentment now in the presence when one acknowledges God, when one acknowledges him and his work in this world. And so the frustration and the realism and the futility never crosses the bounds of Moving God from his proper place as the good and sovereign creator of all things. The frustrations that he feels are merely an expression of our own weakness and smallness. And the way out of them is not to deny the reality of this world or to make the world ultimate, but to let them have their full force and intent of pushing us to God, of pushing us to realize how small we are in his world and we need to live for something greater than ourselves. And in that sense, what is the overall purpose then of Ecclesiastes? Well, one has suggested this, and I think it's a, it's a pithy way to say it. I couldn't really improve on it. Uh, although I will add something to it. Uh, it was this. Uh, fear God in order to turn a vain and empty life into a meaningful life which will enjoy God's gifts. 
That's, that's a good way to say the overall purpose. Fear God in order to turn a vain and empty life into a meaningful life which will enjoy God's gifts. And I would only add this. And to know wisdom so you can live more securely in this world and have a confident anticipation of the one to come. That's how the book ends. Okay, finally, on this uh, overview of the book, what is the general structure? Well, uh, structure in Ecclesiastes, as with uh, many uh, books, uh, uh, the other wisdom books, is difficult because there's themes that run throughout and they're all kind of intertwined together and to separate them into some neat little pattern has, is like Gordian's knot. It's, uh, it occupies much time and energy of those far more able to find it if there was one there than I am uh, because it's the nature of the kind of wisdom literature. However, there is a broad way I think we can break it up. After a detailed analysis, one is convincingly argued for this general structure, and we'll follow it with a lot of subpoints in between, or subsections in between. And, and this is a, a division that's been widely accepted as uh, valid, if, if not uh, dogmatic. First is we have the introduction in verses 1 through 11, and this is what we'll cover next week, in which he sets the tone of one part of the book, the negative part, which is simply to say that in this world, there is a kind of repetitiveness, a kind of ongoingness that never leads to any kind of ultimate conclusion or completion. And it is then produces for men a kind of vanity if we're, as we're caught up in it. Nothing new can be created. Whatever has been done has already been done. Whatever is done is gonna then later be forgotten. And that's just how life is. And so the very opening book and the introduction sets that as the backdrop. And then there goes on to two broad divisions in verses, the first part up to verse 6-9. It's, it's the preacher's investigation of life. And so he's going to take us through this investigation of one of the wise men who's looking at all of the details of a life that had every privilege before him, every ability to follow every desire and every pleasure and everything that entered into his mind. And he's going to investigate that for us and to show us the end of it. And then the second part is his conclusions. What are the preacher's conclusions? What is it that he learns overall about these inconsistencies in life? And then he ends with a poem of old age and then finally with the epilogue. Now that being said, let's get into, let me mention the general themes of Ecclesiastes. And as I noted, these are very broad We'll uh, cover them in detail as we go through. An overview of the themes. This is what, this is uh, the first primary theme, is this. That God is the creator. That God is the creator of all things. And God created all things good, but sin has corrupted what God has made. That's, that's a theme that runs throughout. God made it. God made it good, but sin has come in and corrupted. We read that out of Paul this morning. We read that throughout Scripture in both Old and New Testaments. God didn't create the world and to be under the corruption and the groaning of sin. He created the world for flourishing and for righteousness and for goodness, for satisfaction, for human flourishing. That's why he created the world. Sin has come in and corrupted it. And Ecclesiastes traces that out as a main theme. And with the instruction that therefore meaning cannot be found by searching for it in this world. Again, all is vanity. And in that way, there is a strong link between the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2 and the book of Ecclesiastes. In Genesis 1 and 2, God created all things. He says, it is good, it is good, it is good. He created man in his image and he said, it is very good. It is very good. He created a world that was good, that was full of his goodness and his beauty. And Ecclesiastes recognizes that. In verse 11, 5, again, just, I'm going to read them. He says, just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things, who makes all things. He says in chapter 12, verse 1, remember also your creator in the days of your youth. 
He stands firmly understanding that God is the creator of all things, that he created things good. He created things good and that man can still find some good in this world, some joy in work, some satisfaction in the fruit of their hands, his hands. And man is not merely a machine to live on this world, in this world. But God created man in his image. Genesis 1:26, in the image of God, he created him. He gave him dominion. He told him to rule and populate and fill the earth and bring it into subjection to God's purposes as man was his vice regents, as it were, on earth. And in to do this, then, man, unique among all of God's creation, reflects the nature and the character of God. Just to give an example, man thinks... He thinks, he says in verse 3, I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body and so forth and see if he could lay hold of wisdom. Man is a thinking creature. He's a reasoning creature. He thinks, he observes, he feels what he, the world that he lives in. We experience it with deep emotion, sadness, and loss. In chapter 7, verse 2, he talks about the house of mourning. In chapter 9, verse 1, he talks about love and hatred. All the experiences that we as humans feel. He talks about despair, joy, contentment, fear, envy, the whole gamut of the inner life of human experience as we live in this world. Man was meant to live in this world. Man was meant to engage in this world with one another and creation. Man was meant to interact with all that God has made and to have a sense of purpose. But sin has corrupted what God has made. And that's the fact that we're faced with. And so he says in verse 20, he says indeed of chapter 7, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and never sins. And he says in chapter 9, verse 3, this is an evil that in all that is done under the sun, there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives and afterwards they go to the dead. God created man upright and yet sin has corrupted what he's made. And evil resides in the heart of men, and that should take us all the way back as well to Genesis chapter 6, before the flood. The thoughts and the intentions of their heart are only evil continually. It should take us out to God's assessment of man after the flood with Noah and his sons where he repeats the same thing. And yet he says he will be kind and not destroy the earth by water again, but will in the end destroy it by fire. God created man upright, and yet he is corrupted by sin. And sin has brought then a futility into this world, and a world in which there is hardship and injustice. But even more than that, or what reigns over all of that, or kind of is of the essence of all of that futility is this. What has sin brought? Paramount, paramountly, is paramountly a word? Can I use it as an adverb? Uh, what has sin brought primarily? Death, death, and that's what we have to realize, and that's what man has to come face to face with, and that's what Ecclesiastes brings us face to face with. In the day that you eat of that tree, you will die. They ate of the tree, that day they died, they were separated from God, they hid themselves with fig leaves, they were separated from one another, they no longer loved God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, they no longer loved their neighbors themselves, in that case, even between a husband and wife, and there was a difficulty brought into the earth, and their very life itself was brought to an end. From dust you were taken, and from dust you shall return. And in your, the days of your shortness of your life, you're going to have pain and childbirth, you're going to have conflict in relationships and you're going to have toil and hardship in bringing out sustenance from this world. That's how it's going to be. That's how it's going to be and Ecclesiastes recognizes that. He says in chapter 3 verse 20, all go to the same place. All came from the dust and all returned to the dust. Reflecting Genesis 3, from dust you came and to dust you shall return. He repeats that in other places. So death claims the life of both the wise and the foolish, of all men. It claims the life of everyone. He says that there is 
not only this looming death, but there's also injustice. Death is in the universe. It's an unavoidable reality that puts all things into perspective. And so this is just an important as we, just in that, this theme. One has said this, that I am convinced that only a proper perspective on death provides the true perspective on life. Living in light of your death will help you to live wisely and freely and generously. This author goes on to say, life is complex and messy, sometimes brutally so, but there is a straightforward way to look at the mess. The end will put it all right. The end, when we stand before God as creator and judge, will explain everything. Ecclesiastes encourages us to take the one thing in the future that is certain, our death, and work backward from that point into all the details and decisions and heartaches of our lives and to think about them from from the perspective of the end. And as a Christian, we do that uniquely. Ecclesiastes is certainly written under the promises of the covenant of a Messiah to come and of a world to come. It's written still under the promises given even in the fall account of the fall that God will undo the works of Satan through the seed of the woman. That is still a hope in Israel and in God's covenant people. But as Christians, we have even a greater hope. And God tells us to look at the end. What is one of the great strategies of Satan is to keep us looking at this world, to keep us distracted by its glitter, longing for its promises of pleasure, to keep us satisfied here. And yet, just as Ecclesiastes does, so does all of Scripture, and especially after the coming of Christ, to say, set your mind on the things above, not the things that are here on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. When Christ is revealed, then we will be revealed with him in glory. That's what Paul said. We're groaning now, but we're groaning in hope. We're groaning in hope of a better future and a better day and a new creation. And so one theme that runs throughout is that God created, is the creator. He created all things good, but sin has corrupted it. But the corruption does not kill our hope It just teaches us not to find, try to find meaning in this world. And that goes to the second one, theme. That God is sovereign, but his ways are mysterious and a past our ability to comprehend. We have to live by faith. God made us in his image with longings for more than this world can deliver. And he set eternity, a sense of eternity in man's heart. One has said he gives them an instinctual awareness of his existence and a feeling of emptiness without him. Many of you remember Augustine's famous statement. It's so helpful. He says in his confessions, it's early on, he says this. He says uh, that the heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. There's other ways it's said, but that's the idea. The heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. What do we observe in much of our lives and in much of the world, particularly those outside of Christ, is a restlessness. It's a restlessness. It's an internal restlessness. Why? It's what's behind a lot of the sinful behavior of man is a restlessness. It's trying to find some kind of relief, some kind of meaning, some kind of purpose, some kind of satisfaction. And so it goes from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next, but without God. And the fact is that That's how it's going to be if we choose to live in this world without acknowledging God for who he is and particularly what he's done in Christ. But what we are confronted with, and if you're a human being here in this room, and I think that's everyone, then we know the frustrations of God's mysterious providence. We know it. And again, sometimes it works for blessing, but at the end of the day, we look at the world and we simply can't figure it out. We just can't figure it out. And yet God stands as sovereign over all of it. He says in chapter 3, verse 1, there is an appointed time for everything and there is a time for every event under heaven. He lists what all of those are in the whole gamut of life. And then he says in verse 11, he has made everything appropriate in its time and he's also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from beginning even to the end. So in other words, there's a longing to understand, there's a sense that there's something more, and yet there's also a reality of our inability to figure out what that something more is on its own. 
Even the mysteries of creation reflect an inestimable wisdom that leaves man with a sense of his own limitations. I mentioned this earlier, but listen again. No one knows what will happen, chapter 8, verse 7. If no one knows what will happen, who can tell him when it will happen? Verse 8, no man has authority to restrain the wind with the wind or authority over the day of death, and there is no discharge in the time of war, and evil will not deliver those who practice it. We don't know what's going to happen in the future. He says later in that chapter, when I gave my heart to know wisdom and to see the task which has been done on the earth, I saw every work of God, and I concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover. And though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot discover. It's a mystery. This is a mystery. He says in verse 5 of chapter 11, just as you know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant, as you do not, excuse me, do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. And there it is. We're stuck with that here. That things are going to happen in life and life takes a course that we're just going to say, I can't figure it out. I don't understand. It is a mystery to me. And if we can't even understand the mysteries of the natural world, there's so much we don't know, and we can observe and study it, how would we ever expect to figure out the details of God's hidden counsel and eternal wisdom, especially when it so often works counter to our own intuitions and expectations? Doesn't it? Doesn't it? It does, from my perspective. I think yours is too. And of course, this fits with what Isaiah said, where God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, your ways, my ways are not your ways, my thoughts are higher than yours, as the heavens are above the earth. You're never going to be able to figure it out. Romans, Paul says the same thing in Romans, from him, through him, and to him are all things, to him be the glory. Why? Because his ways are inscrutable. Whoever has become his counsel, whoever has informed God about the way that he should work out his eternal plan, no one, we can't even understand it in its fullness, even when he tells us what he does. It leaves us with a sense of mystery and of faith. So then how do we react? With hopelessness? That's not what Ecclesiastes tells us. It says then it pushes us to react in faith to turn to God and to trust him and to fear him and to keep a proper perspective. And so in chapter 3, 14, he says this. He says, I know everything that God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it. There is nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should what? Fear him. Fear him. Again, acknowledge our smallness. Acknowledge that he is the one who rules over what he made and he does it according to his own wisdom and his own will. And therefore, we should act respectfully. And when we come before God, we come to him with that kind of reverence that says, God, you're God, I am not. In chapter five, guard your steps as you go to the house of God. Draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. You go there with a reverence to say, I submit to you and to your will. Ultimately, that is displayed even in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Your will be done and not my own. We go to God with that kind of trust and that kind of prayer. And so wisdom is then to fear God and to keep a proper perspective, namely that he is the one who rules over all things. To realize we can't undo what he does, so don't spend time being frustrated in the confusion. Just accept it for what it is and that he knows what he's doing behind the scenes. That's what he says in Verse 13 of chapter 7, consider the work of God, for who is able to straighten what he has bent? And in the day of prosperity, be happy, but in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other, so that man will not discover anything after him. In a time of blessing, praise God for it. In a time of suffering and adversity, acknowledge his wise hand behind it, and trust him, and be content, is the idea. And in fact, we don't even know what is best for us and again, tell me if these kind of statements don't meet you where, they, where we live. He says in verse 12 of chapter 6, For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life? He will spend them like a shadow, for who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? 
I don't even know what's good for my own life. You don't know what's good for your own life. If I were to map out my plan for my life, it would have been very different in many ways. You could say the same thing, probably, many of you. But we don't know what is best. We don't know what is best for our spiritual growth. We don't know what God is doing. Why does God take a young, promising Christian in the prime of their life and let the wicked continue to live till old age and flourish? I don't know. You can't answer that. Neither can I. But God has a purpose behind it. That's what Ecclesiastes tells us. We look at that. And how often do you hear people say, why did he take them so young? Why did he do this? Because he's God. That's why. And because he's doing something we can't understand. But we know this world isn't what it's supposed to be, and yet he's working behind the scenes to accomplish something that ultimately is good. Ultimately is good. And that makes us click in with Paul's other statement in Romans 8. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. That good is to be conformed to his image. And we know that even though we may be like sheep, ready to be slaughtered all the day long, in the end, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And the mere fact is this, that we don't know what lies around the corner. When you go take a job, when you go to school, when you move to a new city, when you form new friends, you don't know what the end of those things ultimately is going to be. You don't know whether it'll be fruit or frustration. You simply live each day as it is, try to be wise and take what God brings. Chapter one, verse nine, for I have taken all this to my heart and explain it to righteous men, wise men, and their, deed, their, and their deeds are in the hand of God. Man does not know whether it will be love or hatred. Anything awaits him. Will your friend betray you? Who knows? Will you go to an ultimate job that will end only in discouragement and loss? Who knows? Is your investment going to make money or lose money? Who knows? Well, I can tell you what might have done, but that's after the fact. Who knows what it will do in the beginning? That's just the life we live in. I don't know. You don't know. It's an insolvable mystery of life. It's just an in solvable mystery of life. And so this really fits wisdom in this way. In light of the insolvable mystery of life that stems from the apparent meaninglessness and randomness of its happening and circumstances, Ecclesiastes encourages us to understand that there is a larger plan being worked out that we cannot understand simply by looking at the particulars. That particular day, that particular event, I don't know. Sometimes we can look at our lives and say one particular event that was inscrutable to us here makes sense years down the road. Oh, now I kind of get how that worked out. God was doing something different. This is very similar then to uh, Solomon's advice in Proverbs chapter three. Trust in the Lord with your, all your heart. What's the next part? This is the hardest part. Lean not on your own understanding, but acknowledge him in all of your ways and he will make your path clear. And then he goes on and says, don't be wise in your own eyes. Why? Because you have no ultimate wisdom. The wisdom is to trust God, not try to figure it out and get the details all sorted to where it makes sense because here's the reality. A lot of what God does is not gonna make sense. It just simply isn't. But we can trust him and that's where we're pointed to here. So the greater part of wisdom is to live life accepting what comes, realizing there's a key role in the decisions we make. Enjoy the good things God gives, but remember that the overall plan includes accountability to the one who made and rules over all things. And so wisdom, thirdly, is still the best way to live, and these I'm gonna have to mention quickly as we come into the Lord's table. Although the wise and the foolish experience the same fate, and although trying to find ultimate meaning in human wisdom is futile, even still, wisdom serves one better in life than foolishness. It's still better to be wise than foolish for multiple reasons. In chapter 2, verse 13, he says this, and I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. It's better to be wise in chapter 8.1, he says, Who is like the wise man, and who knows the interpretation of a matter? A man's wisdom illumines him and causes his stern face to beam. He talks later about, in chapter 10, If an axe is dull and does not sharpen its edge, then he must exert more strength. Wisdom has the advantage of giving success. It's better to be wise, but wisdom in this world is not the end of all things. And if it's, again, as he had said earlier, if it's sought for those purposes, it will only lead to frustration. But it is better 
to be wise rather than to be foolish. And although injustice is too often present in this world, we must take hope in the fact that ultimate justice will be met. So that's a particular thing. That's especially true now. We see so much injustice in the world on both sides of the debate, on both sides. All sides need to be heard and all the facts need to be gathered in. But I can tell you what, if we're going to look for ultimate justice to be met in this world, you're gonna come up empty. You're gonna come up empty. We do the best we can to pursue it, but we also know that it won't come to its full fruition until the end. And we must wait for that. We must wait for that day to happen. He says in verse 17 of chapter 3, I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man for a time for every matter and for every deed is there. It's coming, but we must wait. He says later, because the sentence in chapter 8 against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men are given fully to do evil. And although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know this, it will be well for those who fear God and who fear him openly. But it will not be well for the evil man, and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow, because he does not fear God. That's not unlike Psalm 73. I was envious in my heart until I went into the house of God and what I saw there end and that it will come to destruction. And then that gave him the perspective of wisdom to say, ah, it's better to be righteous. And even though the wicked seem to flourish right now, in the end, I know that my goodness lies in God. Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you, I desire nothing on earth. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. And that's where it should lead us. Lastly, so then how are we to live contentedly in this kind of world? Well, we can fear God. We can have wisdom. We know is better. But mostly we're point where he points us is this. And this is the last theme here. And again, I'll mention it quickly. Learn to enjoy God's gifts. For both the gifts and the joy are from God. Learn to enjoy God's gifts. Even in the midst of frustration, even in the midst of uncertainty, God gives us good things and we are to recognize them as from his hand. As a matter of fact, one of the saddest things that he'll acknowledge later in Ecclesiastes is this, is one of the great evils under the sun in chapter six is this, for a man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that his soul lacks nothing of all he desires, yet God has not empowered him to eat from them for a foreigner enjoys them. This is vanity and a severe infliction. He goes on to say he may have many good things, but he never finds the joy in them. And he says in verse three, better is a miscarriage than he. It's better to never have seen the sun, to never have seen the sun and never know anything than to have all of these good things and never to enjoy them. And so the good gift that we have for those who fear God is to enjoy the good gifts that he gives. That's the blessing. What is the reward that you have in this life of serving God in this life? The good things, to enjoy the good things that he gives. That is the reward. That's where he points us to. And whatever we receive that is good from God's hand is much more than we should expect and certainly much more than we deserve. And so again, what does he say in chapter two? He says, There's a, it's nothing better than for a man to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. For a person who is good in his sight, he's given wisdom and knowledge and joy. He says the same thing in Verse 12 of chapter 3, I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the, the gift of God. And he's worked this way, he says at the end of verse 14, so that men should fear him. And then he says this marvelous statement uh, a little bit later. He says, enjoy the good things that God has given. And he says this. He says... For God has already approved of your works. Now, what does he mean by that? I just find that a wonderful statement. It's essentially saying this. God created these things for you to enjoy. And as long as they're enjoyed is from his hand and in their proper place in his world, God's already approved of your enjoyment. You don't have to be anxious about it. If he gives you wealth and that wealth is a gift from his hand, enjoy it. Be generous. 
Don't be guilty about it. If he gives you food and pleasure in those things, enjoy the good things that he gives you. They're a gift from his hand. That is the reward. As a matter of fact, he says in chapter 5, here is what I've seen to be good and fitting. Verse 18, to eat, to drink, and to enjoy oneself and all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of life which God has given him. For this is his reward. What is the reward of God? That when you go to work, you put in an honest day of hard work, you make good decisions, and you're satisfied with the fruit of your labor, go home and enjoy that satisfaction and praise God for the good thing that he's given to you. That's the reward. That's the reward. So these are many good gifts. One says this. He says, to taste the sweetness of ordinary joys, we learn to enter each day with a conviction about the givenness of all things. Like saying, open your hand, Pay attention to what God is giving and what he is not. Receive with humility what he gives is enough and thankfully pursue this. Enjoy this. In other words, don't worry about what he didn't give. Focus on what he did give. Don't worry about what you lack. Worry about the abundance that you receive or be praise him for the abundance that you receive. And again, death puts all this in perspective. When author says, therefore... The power to accept our lot does not refer to numb resignation or pointless apathy, nor is the preacher simply telling us that death is coming, therefore stop and smell the roses while you can. Acceptance involves our alertness to God's presence among the gifts he has given us and the sense of his joy that he intends to provide us through our visiting with him among them under the sun. So here's the overall message, and that this will come into the table. In one sense, all of these good things are gifts from God. Wealth, food, work, sex, pleasures, family, friends, etc. All of these are good gifts of God that he has given to man. But in another sense, they will leave you empty and miserable if you try to find ultimate meaning and purpose in them. If you try to watch more Netflix to be happier, you're going to end up empty. If you try to spend more time on social media to find satisfaction and meaning in relationship, you're going to come up with nothing but anxiety and misery. If you try to find identity in your work and in friendships and connections, they'll have a moment in the sun, but in the end, it will leave you feeling nothing inside and vacant and futile. That's the point. But when those things that are seen not as ultimate, but good gifts of a benevolent creator who delights in giving joy and in the enjoyment of his creatures made in his image, who are living circumspectly under his goodness and his sovereignty and his covenant, then they are gifts to be delighted in. And there is a satisfaction because the satisfaction isn't ultimately in the thing himself, but in the goodness of the one who gave it. And remember that as we enjoy those things, we are accountable to the one who gave it. And that's where he ends, Ecclesiastes. And that kind of sums up his whole point. He says, rejoice, young man, during your childhood. Let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood. And follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Yet, know that God will bring you to judgment for these things. And then he ends with this. The conclusion... When all has been heard, fear God, keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment and everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. This is an encouraging promise and a hopeful outlook is qualified by this corollary reality that the enjoyment of God's gifts includes the responsibility to enjoy and use them as he intended them. For in the end, God's good plan includes judgment based on our living in light of his purpose for life and in light of the end. But in light of that, we can enjoy all, every good thing. And as Christians, we have an even more certain hope than what Solomon knew. We have the coming of the Messiah. And we know as believers this one thing. Well, some hold to post-millennialism that thinks everything's gonna get better and then Christ will return. But that aside... We understand, at least those of most of us in this room, that scripture makes clear to us that things are not gonna get better, they're gonna get worse. So enjoy the times of blessing that we have. As Americans, enjoy the time of security that we have. It may not last forever. Enjoy the flourishing, enjoy the protection, enjoy the status that we've had in the world, but know that nothing guarantees that status and it can be gone tomorrow. And so can the freedoms that we have become accustomed to. 
So can the expectation of prosperity that has driven much of our lives. That could come to an end, but that's okay because we know things will be made right. And whatever end we experience in this world of those good things, it's only a temporary end and it doesn't compare to the ultimate experience of the better things that God has for us at his return. And that is where Paul, again, was going in Romans 8. And that's where all scripture points us. And that's why Paul said, even though my outer man decays, my inner man is being renewed day by day because there's something better at the end. And it's better to depart and to be with the Lord. And we know that one day, even now, while injustice reigns, that as the Lord tells us, even as he reminds us in taking the Lord's Supper, that he is returning and that this promise is true and with this we'll take the supper. The kingdom of the world, Revelation 11, the kingdom of the world, this is a proclamation in heaven, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever and the 24 elders will sit on their thrones before God, fell on their faces and worship him saying, we give thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, you who are and who were because you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. And that's our hope. And that's what we remember in the Lord's table.